Well, some of you probably know some Christian acronyms. Joy, Jesus, others, and you. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Think that one's any good? Not bad. What about Bible? Basic instructions before leaving earth. Is that true? If I ask you the question, what's the Bible all about? If you could give me the theme of the Bible and tell me what it's all about. All 66 books written over 1,500 years in three languages, 40 different authors. What's the Bible all about? Lots of people think it's about how to live a life that honors God. Practical things, moral things, pious things. It certainly includes those. But is the Bible really about practical things? It's important to ask and answer because if you think the Bible's all about practical things, that's what you'll look for when you read the Bible. What do I do? How does this apply to me? If there's a bigger theme, if there's a grander theme, you'll read the Bible in a different way. And so today we're going to have a great illustration of this very fact and what you believe about the Bible's theme helps you interpret the Bible in particular. And sometimes, to use Sinclair Ferguson's words, we look at the Bible and we have the where's Waldo mentality. Remember the book, you try to find where Waldo is, and sometimes we go to the Bible and we say, where am I in this passage? And today we're going to look at a passage that I'm not in, you're not in. It has nothing to do with us directly in terms of practical application, but it has everything to do with the Lord Jesus and how He secures salvation and how without Him doing what He did in this passage today, none of us have any hope, none of us have any forgiveness. But since He did conquer in this passage, we do have hope. So take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Jesus according to Luke. And I like to say the Gospel of Jesus according to Luke because it reminds us the Gospels are about Jesus. Yes, the Gospel of Luke, but it's Luke talking about the Lord Jesus, the good news about the Lord Jesus. And if you turn to chapter 1 to start, I think that will be important for us because we're going to get into chapter 4 soon enough. But just a reminder as we work through the Gospel of Jesus according to Luke. Sometimes uh, when we read books of the Bible, even the New Testament, we we turn it into just a how-to manual. And I want you to know that this book even in its preface, even in its purpose statement, even in its instructions on why it's in the Bible, will help us interpret the rest of the book. Of course, it starts off in verse 1, verse uh, chapter 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, this is Luke the physician speaking, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. I'm going to write something that happened among you. It's history. It's orderly. It's correct. And then what does he say in verse 4? And here's the key to unlock all the gospel of Jesus according to Luke, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This writer, Luke, inspired by the Spirit of God, wants to make sure that you are certain about Jesus, that you have the right Jesus, 
that Jesus did the right things, that he accomplished the right salvation, that he's going to take people to the right heaven. And so you need to know. And if you're a Christian, it's good to be reminded. And if you're not a Christian, Luke presents the facts in an orderly way to show you who Jesus is. Of course, the pinnacle of it all is in Luke 19, is it not, where Jesus comes to seek and save those that were lost. So in light of that, understanding that Luke wants to make you certain that you have the right Jesus, let's pick it up now in chapter 4. We ended two weeks ago with the genealogy And I don't know if you've been doing your Robert Murray McShane daily Bible reading, but if you have been, I've been keeping up, uh, there are lots of genealogies. And it is nice to know that we can read genealogies as God breathed now after a couple weeks ago going through the Gospel of Luke and the genealogy. And so we come with the genealogy ending in verse 38 of chapter 3, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And then the very next word in our passage today in Luke chapter 4, verse 1 is in English, and there's a tie in between the genealogy and this temptation account. And remember the first three chapters, he, the writer Luke, is trying to tell you there's kind of a parallel between John the Baptist and Jesus. Their births were announced. Uh, They were both born. Uh, John the Baptist is a forerunner making straight the way of the Lord. And I wonder if Jesus has the right credentials. And you'll need to have the right credential Jesus if you're going to be certain, Luke 1, 4, that this is the right Jesus. And so we know he has the right credentials. We have the Father saying, At the end of Luke chapter 3, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The spirit descends like a dove. Now we have the genealogy. He's the right Jesus. And now what happens in chapter 4? Well, most of the time when we come to this temptation account, here's what we do. This is the wrong way to do it. This is the way I did it for years. This is the way maybe you do it. We find Jesus saying no to Satan. Not once, not twice, but three times. And he says no to Satan by saying each time it is written. It is written, it is written. From Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 6, and Psalm 91, Jesus says, here's God's Word, and He overcomes temptation. Now, by the way, is it good to overcome temptation? Of course. You've probably been tempted this week. I've been tempted this week. And it is good for us to overcome temptation. Matter of fact, did you know you can hide God's Word in your heart so you don't sin against God? But that's not what this passage is about. If you take this passage as, this is how I should overcome temptation... It might be a principle we might talk about in another sermon in 2049. I think I'll live that long, don't you? I'm going to outlive all of you. I'm going to be like 95 up here preaching. Will he ever stop talking about Jesus? The answer is no. This isn't about you. This isn't about overcoming temptations. This is about there's the last Adam, Jesus. And when Adam was tempted and failed, when Israel was tempted and failed, when David on a rooftop was tempted and failed, when Paul the Apostle was tempted and failed, when you tempted, were tempted and failed, isn't there anyone who's going to be tempted and say no to Satan and no to their own desires? Isn't there anyone who's going to do the will of the Father? Isn't there going to be anyone who could undo what Adam did? I mean, someone has to stand up against Satan or we're all doomed. And so here in Luke chapter 4, the spotlight's on Jesus. It has nothing to do with us primarily except our salvation, except our forgiveness, except our captain who is going to earn salvation. 
we're standing and watching in this passage, as it were, with our eyes as we read it. Jesus is going to say no to Satan. At least I hope he does. I want to say to Jesus when I'm reading this passage, Jesus, resist the devil. He'll flee from you. You're my only hope. I know I've sinned. I know eternity is a long time. I know God is holy. And I need a Savior. He seems to have the right credentials. I mean, he doesn't have a father who's tainted him with sin as he was conceived. The Spirit of God hovered over him. He's got the right credentials in terms of the line of royalty. He's got the right credentials when the father says, this is my beloved son. But he's going to have to withstand Satan's attack. I wonder if he will or not. And that's what we'll look at today. If you want to outline, it's pretty simple. Three temptations of Satan, three responses of Jesus. Three temptations, three responses. And there is a lot of drama in this passage. As we look at the passage, we say to ourselves, finally, there's someone who's going to stand up to Satan. Finally, there's going to be one who's coming to, to deliver us. We don't have to look anywhere else. We don't have to go anywhere else. Here comes the Savior, Jesus R. Kent Hughes said in chapter 3, heavens opened and the Father said, this is my beloved Son. And in chapter 4, hell opens. And here comes Satan. Obviously, Satan hates Jesus. Obviously, Satan understands that Jesus had come to redeem. I don't know if Satan was there at the baptism of Jesus. Satan's not omnipresent. He's not all-powerful. But he probably knows something about this Jesus, and now he's going to have to stop this. He hates God. He hates people. He hates Jesus. He hates the prophets. He hates the Scriptures. He hated Adam. He hated Eve. He hates you. And now what's going to happen? This has nothing to do with, how do I overcome temptation? Primarily, it has everything to do with Jesus. And that's what makes it so wonderful. Now, before we look at these three temptations, just a couple contrasts. We're thinking Adam, the first Adam. We're thinking Jesus. He's called the last Adam. And I wonder if there's kind of differences. Remember, Adam was tempted. But where was he tempted? A lush garden. Fruit. Trees. Water. Bright humidity. Beautiful. Smells. Adam was tempted in a garden. Where was Jesus tempted? We'll learn to find out, and you already know he's tempted in the wilderness. Arid, dry, nothing around. There's another contrast that we need to remember before we get into the passage. Adam's in the garden, and he has someone to help him overcome temptation. If you've got a spouse or you've got a friend and you're trying to stand against temptation, it's better to have someone else with you because together it's easier. Adam in the garden, in a perfect place, with the perfect, sinless wife to say no to temptation. Jesus, on the other hand, is in the garden, excuse me, is in the wilderness alone. The last contrast before we look at the passage. Adam in the garden with a helper, and all kinds of food. He could eat from every one of those trees, minus one. And he could eat, and he was full when he was tempted. He was full when he was tempted by food. And now you move over to Jesus, tempted alone, tempted in the wilderness, and he hadn't eaten for 40 days. 
chapter 4, verse 1, and Jesus, focusing on his humanity. If I said Christ, Messiah, Lord, but here to make sure you're understanding Jesus, the last Adam, Adam tempted as a man, Jesus tempted, truly man, and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, I think he might win. If he's full of the Spirit, I think he might win. Giving you a little, showing my hand a little bit here. The Spirit of God shows us his hand in Scripture. He's full of the Spirit. Returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. That should also tell you something, dear congregation. This is not about us. Oh, we're recipients of the salvation. That's true. But aren't we supposed to pray according to the Lord Jesus? Lead us not into... Temptation. That's how we're to pray. God, don't lead us into temptation. Something must be going on here that's different. Because we're told not to lead us into temptation is a good prayer. And Jesus, full of the Spirit, coming from the baptism of John the Baptist, baptizing Jesus, He is led by the Spirit into the temptation. He's driving the, the Lord Jesus into being tempted. This has to be about Jesus. It can't be primarily about us. And how long did this happen? Verse 2, 40 days being tempted by the devil and he ate nothing during those days and when they were ended, he was hungry. Moses was tempted for 40, I mean, excuse me, Moses didn't eat for 40 days. Elijah, Israel's in the wilderness 40 years. You, You kind of hear some of this language coming back. And as you know, if you don't eat, Kind of hard to say no to certain temptation. Makes you much more susceptible. Physical trials can even influence spiritual stamina. And he's led by the Spirit. This plan of God. This decree of God. This ordination of God. Lead us not to temptation. Here the Spirit of God does lead him into temptation because there has to be a man who says no to temptation and stand up against Satan. Did you notice, dear congregation, that before this, Satan could have tempted Jesus, and maybe he did, but we're not told in Scripture. Why is there such an intense temptation now? We see three temptations, but if you look back at your text, it could show that he's been tempted for 40 days, many, many, being tempted by the devil over and over and over for those 40 days. Three for certain, but could be many more. What's the intense assault about now when Jesus is tempted? Why didn't He get assaulted when He was five, twelve, in the temple teaching? Thirty years old, why now? Because before the baptism, Jesus was the private person in the sense that His ministry had not started. And now His ministry has started He's been ordained in the ministry, as it were, by the Spirit of God. And now comes the assault. Now comes the assault. I sure hope Jesus wins, don't you? I sure hope He overcomes temptation. I wonder, will He win? And of course, we know the answer. For 40 days being tempted by the devil. The word there, devil, is diabolos, a a slander. Over and over and over, the slander Satan says these things. And now we come to the first temptation. Three temptations, three responses. Here's the first temptation. To distrust the Father. And it's found in verse 3. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. So the slander, the misrepresenter, 
the evil one, the accuser, the one who leads astray, the one who wrongly talks about God. If you're the son of God, command the stone to become bread. And here's what Satan is saying. I thought you were the son. I I thought the father just said you're the beloved son. And, And what son is not provided for by the father? I mean, I'm a sinful dad and I can't think of one time my children ever went without food. I mean, that doesn't sound like a very good father. Matter of fact, if you're not being taken care of, maybe he's not your father and maybe you're not the son. See what Satan's doing there? Where's the favor of God on you as the son, the eternal son, the redeemer? I mean, you're out here dying of starvation. Just, just tell the stone to become bread. It's not that big a deal. I mean, God isn't good. He's not providing. God isn't reliable. God's not faithful. Questioning the character of God. Just like back in Eden with Satan and Adam and Eve. I mean, you're hungry. Make some bread. I don't think Satan knew this, but of course we know Jesus could make bread for 5,000 men, 4,000 men, 10,000 people. He can just create bread, the bread of life. I mean, you're God's son. You don't even have a place when you were born. You're put in a manger, living in some little obscure place in Nazareth. You're a God's son. You're really God's son and now you can't even eat. I think the first Adam fell when it came to food. I wonder if this Adam will fall when it comes to food. We know it's not been the will of the Father for him to eat. It's not right for the Son to take matters in his own hands. It's not right for the Son to say, well, you know what? I'm going to provide for my own. I'm not going to rely on the Father. It's not right for Jesus to take matters in his own hands. Resist the devil, Jesus, he'll flee from you. Some say, wrongly, that this first temptation was all about gluttony. And so if you ever want to not be a glutton, you go to this passage. That's weird. What's it about? It's about this. If Jesus fails at any point, we're doomed. There's no salvation. And my microphone's off. Just check the battery, too. All right, that's all right. Here we go. Two double A's. I used to work for Duracell. The technical number of these double A batteries is MN1500. True. That seems like we've done this before. Thank you very much. Let's not give a round of applause. Taylor. People start to clap at this church. Oh, we're not supposed to clap at the church. Okay, back to the message. If he fails, if he sins, there's no resurrection. There's no earning of righteousness. This has nothing to do with, well, I'd like to hide God's Word in my heart. Well, it's a good idea, certainly. But what's at stake is resurrection, ascension, soon return, high priestly intercession even now. Put yourself in his shoes. Put yourself in his sandals. He's out there. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. He's a true human. He's a perfect human. And humans after 40 days are starving, literally. 
the gnawing hunger, the pain. Could Jesus have been closer to death here? More closer to death, obviously, at the crucifixion, but here. The Father calls you beloved Son, and He won't even provide for you. He must not be very good Father. You must not be His Son. Come on, Jesus, you've got the power to alleviate all your suffering. You can just command these things and it'll happen. Is God good? Is the Father good? Well, now we see a response from Jesus. It starts off the same way in every response. Verse 4, And Jesus answered him, It is written. It is written. It stands written. He's quoting Scripture. He's quoting Deuteronomy here. Man, Jesus identifying it as a true human here, man shall not live by bread alone. And in the original language, if you want to emphasize something, you change the order of things and you put something up front to make it even more emphatic. And so the word up front here is not. Not by bread alone. Not by bread alone. Not by bread alone. The answer is no. The answer is like what Jesus said to Peter. Get thee behind me, Satan. The answer is no. The answer is not, well, let me think about it. Let me ask some questions. And of course, Jesus uses Deuteronomy 8, and now you begin to think, oh yes, Israel, they're in the wilderness, and they're tempted, and they sin, they grumble, they complain. You see the tie-in here. There's, there's three sons of God in, in Scripture. Specifically in this context. Son of God, Adam. Son of God, Israel. And Son of God, Jesus. Israel failed the test. Adam failed the test. Grumbling, complaining. What will happen? Jesus quotes Scripture. He doesn't listen to Satan's voice. He quotes the Father's words in Scripture. I love what Hebrews 2 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He, Jesus Himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Matthew, the other account of this, says Jesus stated, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's more important to obey God than it is to eat. It'd be better for me to starve than to go against the will of my Father. Oscar Wilde said, I can resist everything except temptation. Thomas Brooks said, Satan promises the best, but pays with the worst. He promises honor and pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit and pays with loss. He promises life and pays with death. Remember Genesis 5? And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Does Jesus have to prove his sonship? Absolutely not. Not to Satan especially, And here Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone. I don't want to go too fast because you ought to be reminded, dear congregation, as am I, that we have a representative who's a true human. We don't have some weird hybrid 
God-man commingled mixed or some kind of angel-man mixed. Since we sin, we need a Savior who's like us in all things except without sin. So here the man Jesus, the representative, is tempted. In every respect, Hebrews 4, he's been tempted as we are, except he didn't sin. I mean, if you're not going to live by bread alone, how are you going to live? Answer, by trusting in the Father, by the Father's Word. Not by bread alone, but the Word of God. And this faith that Jesus has, Jesus has faith, not like we have. We we have faith because we're sinners and we have a, a, a Savior. Jesus has faith in the sense that He trusts God. He trusts the Father completely. And He will rely on Him. And He's going to rather wait on the Father's will than take care of His own needs right now. Man shall not live by bread alone. He's trusting, unlike Adam. He's believing, unlike Adam. He has faith, unlike Adam. Why would God the Son distrust God the Father? He has no reason. Jesus here, as Paul uses the language of Ephesians 6, takes up the shield of what? Faith. To believe, to trust. Jesus takes on flesh, right? He's born of a virgin. Spirit of God hovers over Him. He's a true human. And true humans have to obey. True humans have to say no to temptation. So Jesus is tempted and responds with God's Word and says, I trust the Father. I don't trust you. Well, Satan doesn't stop. Let's look at the second temptation found in Luke 4, 5-7. And this temptation is to bypass the Father's will. This, test is, this temptation is to go for glory now and not suffering. This is the crown before the cross. Luke 4, 5 to 7. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Stop there. Matthew says Jesus was taken to a high mountain. Say, what does that matter? Don't you see it? Don't you see the recapitulation with Israel? You start off in the wilderness, you go to Mount Sinai, and you end up in the tabernacle. I wonder if the same thing's happening here. You start off in the wilderness, you go to a mountain, and you go to what would have been the temple is now the tabernacle. I see it. This is a, a redo almost. Here's a second try. Here's the last Adam. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I mean, just because Jesus said no the first time, Satan doesn't relent. Let's take him to a mountain. Let's take him to the place where they did religion. Let's, let's do religious, spiritual things. And here's what Satan wants. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to suffer and then get the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever from the Father, you can have it now. Why suffer? Why have the cross before the crown when I can just give it to you right now? This is what Luther called the theology of glory. By the way, P.S., dear congregation, when you watch people on TV, the faith healers, the word faith people, the people that say, send Jesus, 
you know, money and here's my address, those kind of people. Just mark it down in your mind. It's all theology of glory. It's all health, wealth, and prosperity now. It's never suffer, then glory. It's never the cross, then the crown. It's what I want right now. And it appeals to people. It appeals to their inward nature. Well, Jesus' inward nature is different because He's perfect. He's pure. No wicked desires. And He knows that worship must be to the Father and the Father alone. Adoration to the Father and the Father alone. How stupid is this of Satan to do? How did this happen, by the way? Did he really go somewhere? Was it a vision? I don't think we really know. Some kind of vision, at least to see all the kingdoms of the world, Rome and Egypt and Greece, Persia. And if you just fall down and worship me, Matthew says of Satan, it's all yours. Just one little genuflect, one little obedience, one little worshipful curtsy. That's all you need. It's all yours. I mean, Jesus knows what the cross is like. He knows what it's going to be. I don't think Satan quite knows all the details, but we, of course, know. Just genuflect one time before Satan. And there's no beard plucking it out. There's no spitting. There's no hitting you and say, who hit you? There's no crucifixion. There's no lashes. There's no flogging. There's none of that. I mean, it's just so easy. And by the way, Jesus, you're worth it. You deserve it. Why would a father do that to you? Why would a good father put you through all this? A good father would give you the crown now, would give you the glory now. What kind of father do you have? Of course, we realize Jesus even... At Gethsemane, when he prayed, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will. It's about the will of the Father. Now, some people want to argue, does Satan really have these to give? And Satan, I think, is overplaying his hand in the sense that he is the temporary ruler of this world. We would have to grant that because Scripture says it. Jesus even said in John 12, now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. So Satan has a temporary rule over this world. But ultimately, he doesn't. Jesus is taken to some high place, offered all these things. I'll give it to whoever I want. It sounds like Satan saying to Adam and Eve, you shall be like God. You'll be as God's. How does Jesus answer? Well, He answers like He always answers in this. It is written. It stands written. He's not going to bypass the Father's will. He's not going to circumvent what God wants. God wants Jesus to be tempted and overcome because that's what man has to do. Remember, Jesus dies for our sins, but He lives for us righteously. And we now, by the way, fast forward because of the cross and the resurrection. When God sees us, He sees us as people that have never fallen to temptation because we're in Jesus. And Jesus answered him and saying, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. And Matthew 4 adds, Be gone, Satan. Get out of here. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Go. And here Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, not chapter 8, but chapter 6. Let me read to you Deuteronomy 6, verses 13 and 14. 
You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. Spirit of God takes Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. First temptation, Jesus overcomes. Second temptation, Jesus overcomes. I mean, just look at all those kingdoms. Ottoman Empire. By the way, what a great team we would be. Can you imagine the power, the ruthless vengeance that has come about when Jesus and Satan come together as co-laborers for domination? What a team might they be. What does Jesus do? He says, get behind me, Satan. It is written. I'm not going to worship you. I'm not going to serve you. I'm not going to bow down to you. When Satan tempts, Jesus quotes. When Satan says you can't trust the Father, Jesus says, I do trust the Father. And I've been sent here for a mission. Not your mission, Satan. I've been manifest in the flesh to do something, and it's not to do what you say. And then the final temptation found in verse 9. Related to the first two, a direct assault on the Father and His care and His love. And He, Satan, took Him to Jerusalem. Again, you should be thinking to yourself, here it goes again. Israel in the wilderness. Israel on a mountain. Israel in the tabernacle. And here Jesus, wilderness, mountain, temple. And set Him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. And since you like to quote Scripture so much, you love to say it is written, I'll quote Scripture too. It is written. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. I'm going to take you to the place where it all is happening. The temple area. A corner, looking down the Kidron Valley. Matter of fact, they used to say, Messiahs could be proved Messiahs if they just jump off it. So maybe I'll just have you just jump off. Certainly God would take care of you. I don't think Satan really thinks that. Because he doesn't think God the Father is taking care of the Son in the wilderness with no food. Just just jump. Angels will catch you. And by the, by, by, by the way, if they did that, imagine how people would respond. Jesus, the true man, jumping off the temple border at the pinnacle and just being caught at the very bottom. We would all say, yes, it must be the Messiah. Satan quotes the Scripture. I, I actually think Satan could subscribe to the Bethlehem Bible Church's Confession of faith. The London Baptist Confession. Because the demons believe and what? Tremble. It's not a saving faith, but they believe, they understand. They're smart. You quote Deuteronomy 8, you quote Deuteronomy 6. I will quote to you, Jesus, Psalm 91. I mean, when you look down, I've been on that corner. Just there march with some of you and you look down, it's kind of a dizzying experience and you look down and one of the first things you see at the bottom of that pinnacle, at that corner by the Kidron Valley, is a bunch of stones, a bunch of rocks. I mean, there's rocks everywhere in Israel. A lot of rocks in America too when we take home little trinkets of the rocks we picked up in Israel, special holy rocks. 
Now, did he quote scripture rightly? Did he subtract from anything? Did he add to anything? What's going on? If you were to turn to Psalm 91, I'll just read it for you. He, he doesn't say one thing, and then he stops short of something else. Here's Psalm 91, 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And then Satan stops, but Psalm 91 says, in all your ways, like in all your righteous ways, and this wouldn't be righteous to go do that, on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Then he, Satan, does not read Psalm 91, 13, because I'm sure Satan wants nothing to do with serpents and heads and crushing. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Why don't you think Satan would like that verse included? Because that harkens back to Genesis 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. The Messiah is going to crush your head. Satan, I think, says to himself, I better leave that part out. You trust God? Prove it. And instead of trusting God, Satan's wanting Jesus to be presumptuous on God's care. That's wrong. That's sinful. Satan, put your money where your mouth is, is really don't trust your Heavenly Father. Prove something. This is the high place, the high corner rather, that James, Christ's half-brother, was supposedly thrown down from and killed. Satan omits a phrase, in all your ways, in all your righteous ways. And then he switches everything around. It's technically called a hermeneutical switcheroo. (laughs) Instead of trusting God, Psalm 91, read Psalm 91 later today. It's test God. Make God prove Himself. Show Him that He really loves you. Have Him show you that He loves you. God will watch out for you in whatever you do. And if He won't catch you, I, Satan, will. Putting God to the test. I mean, Jesus says no to the easy kingdom. He says no to the food. I wonder if He thinks, you know what, I'll just, I'll just debate this a little bit. I need to think about this. Let me go home and pray about it. No, Jesus doesn't do that at all. He doesn't fall for Satan quoting Scripture. What's Jesus' response to Satan torquing Scripture to say, test God instead of trust God? And Jesus answered him, and like he always says, quoting Scripture, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. From Deuteronomy 6. Lots of temptations in the wilderness. Three recorded. And Jesus responds with Deuteronomy every single time. I know, thinks Jesus, that my feet have one purpose. Not to be dashed on these rocks or somehow caught, but to crush your head, Satan. One writer said, These feet have come not to do your will, but the will of my Father who sent me, said Jesus, and they will not step aside to the left or to the right. I am in the incarnate embodiment of the Word, and I have come to crush you underfoot. Verse 13 says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Like on the cross when the rulers said, If you're the Son of God. Like with the soldiers and their voices, If you're the King of the Jews. 
like with the criminal who said, you're the Christ. Save yourself. Save us. What does Jesus say to Satan here? Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. What does Jesus say when Satan tempts again at an opportune time on the cross? Not a word. What if Jesus did jump? What if Jesus did sin? What if Jesus didn't say, I'm going to obey the Father? What if Jesus didn't say on the cross, into your hands I commit my spirit? Well, there's no hope for any of us. I don't even know why we're here. The text says in Matthew 4, the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Isn't that cool? I don't know what else to say except that's cool. The very verses that Jesus heard from Satan torqued and manipulated about angels guarding, Jesus waits, overcomes temptation, and now the fulfillment of Psalm 91 actually happens to Jesus in God's way, in God's timing, in God's perfect will. He's in the wilderness and now the angels help. I love Jesus' words in John 4. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to furnish His work. You want me to distrust the Father? Jesus said, I won't. Let's just make it practical now. I said stuff about practical before, but I hope you can see it. Trusting the Father no matter what the circumstances are. You see the perfect man doing that. That's what men do. That's what women do. Trust God no matter what. Don't you see Him when He's saying, I I, I understand it's the theology of the cross, then the crown? Because that's what a true human does. That's what the true man, Jesus, does. Don't you see it? Can't you think, oh yeah, that's right. It's God's will. It's God's timing. And don't you see it? We, we, We trust the Father. We don't test Him. I'll believe you if you just do this, that, or the other. Satan is keen. Satan is subtle. Satan tempts. And the same thing like last week with worry. Getting our eyes back on the Heavenly Father and walking by faith is so important. So we come to the passage today in Luke 4. Should you hide God's Word in your heart so you don't sin against God? Yes. Uh, I've talked to Charlie about this for years. Maybe it happens to you too. I know so much music. A lot of it's bad music. But sometimes I'll be in a certain situation in life and a, a song will come to my mind. A lyric will come to my mind. It's just like there, the power of music. And sometimes when you're tempted, once in a while, Bible verses pop in your mind, Right? Like, get that Bible verse out of my mind. I want to do what I want to do. Like, that's bad thinking. Sinful thinking. Jesus actually had to study the Bible. This wasn't all imported into his brain. He's a true human. True humans humans learn. What do we see big picture from this passage? We see that even though Adam sins by temptation, 
Even though Israel sins, even though David sins, even though Daniel sinned, even though all these people sinned, there was one who came. And when the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, the Son responds with obedience. And He obeyed even to the point of the cross, death on the cross, by humbling Himself. And so He's our Savior. Luke says, He's the right one. How do you know you're worshiping the right Jesus? He's got the right genealogy, but the right Jesus can say no to Satan, be gone. You're worshiping the right Jesus. And when you worship the right Jesus by faith, you're secure. You're safe. And so when you read Luke 4 next time, I don't want you to read it like, where's Waldo? I don't want you to read the Bible like basic instructions before leaving earth. That sounds like a good radio show, but nothing else. I want you to say, victory in Jesus. He did it. He's my Savior. I sin and fall into temptation, but Jesus doesn't, and I trust Him as my advocate and righteous representative. Aren't you glad? I hope so. Father in heaven, thank you for your word today. We would admit that all too often, in our selfish way, we read the Bible just like that, selfishly. But it's a book to show us. Even Jesus in Luke 24, after He's been raised, it's all about Him. And that's how we want to read the Bible as well. And I pray for this dear congregation along with myself that when we are tempted and then fall even, that you would grant us repentance, dust us off, and remind us that we are in the last Adam and that we are no longer judged and that we can never become less than children adopted in the family of God forever and ever. We thank you for that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.